0: You're listening to The Turing
1: Podcast, a production of the Alan Turing Institute, the UK's National Institute for Data Science and Artificial Intelligence. Uh, hello everyone, welcome to another episode of The Turing Podcast. I'm Ed Calstry and I'm here with my colleague Joe. Joe, how are you doing?
2: I'm doing well, thanks, Ed. How's everything going with you?
1: Uh, not bad, not bad. Um, we are recording today on the 7th of July and we're no longer technically in lockdown. <laughs> How does it feel?
2: I mean, I haven't been to a pub yet, no, so that neither. feels...
1: I've not had my hair yeah, cut yet. That,
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the main things have stayed the same. Um, I suppose there are more people out and about, which is kind of nice, but there's, I suppose, a slight anxiety about that as well. But on the whole... Yeah, feeling good. On the whole, it's a good thing.
1: Um, Well, yeah, speaking about lockdown and um, how good or bad of a thing it's been, um, we've got a very relevant interview today. Um, So today we've got our second external guest for the Turing podcast, um, Tom Chivers, who is a journalist um, and science writer. Um, And yeah, we're discussing with him some of his uh, recent articles um, during COVID-19, um, all of his uh, opinions on government policy and uh, everything that's been going right and going wrong during the uh, during the pandemic, um, and also just yeah, it, it was really good to um, pick the brains of a journalist about how the world of journalism is sort of representing science, which at this time, which is you know hugely important and has a big impact on people's lives. So, so yeah. Um, On with the interview. (laughs)
2: Enjoy the episode.
1: Hello everyone, welcome to the Turing Podcast. Um, Today we're speaking with Tom Chivers, who is a science writer and journalist who's previously worked for the Daily Telegraph, BuzzFeed UK, and now writes for the online publication Unheard. Unheard. His writing often focuses on topics such as rationalism and artificial intelligence. And he's authored a popular science book titled The AI Does Not Hate You Superintelligence, Rationality, and the Race to Save the World. Today, however, we're going to chat to Tom about some of the articles he's written during, uh, well, for Unheard magazine um, during the COVID 19 pandemic, uh, get his thoughts on how the worlds of science, the media, and the government are handling the crisis. Uh, Tom, welcome to the podcast.
0: Hello, thank you for having me.
1: Um, so I'll so I'll kick off Tom by saying just um, you're you're involved in the Oxford vaccine trial um, as a participant. Um, what's your experience been of that so far? Um, and tell us a bit about the the trial itself.
0: Okay, sure. Yeah, I mean, um, I've only so far done something I hadn't realised when I signed up for it. You know, I was sort of trying trying to be trying to be good and trying to do a decent thing um, and be helpful. What I hadn't realised because I Probably because I didn't read the small print. Was you have to do a swab test every week for the next year?
1: And,
0: oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, exactly. I mean, it was almost certainly in there. I mean, you know, and if, if the trial turns out, if it, obviously if they end the trial early, then I don't have to do it every year. But I've done. My, I did my first one last Friday, and it, uh, I, I, I kind of, I kind of don't want to talk about how horrible it is because it will put other people <laughs> off getting involved in the trial. But I, I just stick this thing. Like first, you stick it. Um, uh, you can't see because this is radio but you know i stick this sort of six inch stick down the back of my throat and swirl it around on my tonsils and i'm retching and gagging and then stick it again stick the same slobbery bit up my nose swab sw- 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 it around up that one nostril right as far back as it'll go so i'm sneezing and my eyes are watering and then do it up the other nostril and i have to do that every, uh so what days. is it wednesday i have to do that in two days time again and i'm already dreading it um
1: but yeah, I, I, I feel your pain because I I I had to take a COVID test at one point and which tested negative. But um, hmm. yeah, I had to go to a drive through and do exactly that. Um, I don't know if this has been your experience. Like, do they actually help you do it? Because I, they, oh, no, you know, no, no, no they, yeah. they gave me they gave
0: me a um, they gave me four. Uh, my next appointment is in, was in a, is a month later, so I've got they've just given me four sets and sent me home. Um, they you know they, they've linked you to a, a YouTube. Um, Video of a nice, friendly doctor talking you through it, and they (laughs) they they give you there's a as a uh, again this is there's no point in showing you because this is radio, but I've got um (laughs) I've got a I've got an instruction leaflet, and it all seems pretty you know it all looks fairly manageable. It's like like the um. Uh, you know the, the the safety instructions on airplanes, and everyone's looking like calm as Hindu cows, as they say. And you know they're, they're, when they're all having a water landing at six hundred miles an hour, but it's, it's like that. Everyone looking very calmly <laughs> while they jab things up their noses. And uh, like, I, actually, it's 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 really it's really traumatic, and I hated every second of it. Um, but other than that, my experience has been very positive on the two times I've been in the. Um, uh, uh, they 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 go in. Um, you you know they, you get a uh, you get met at the well there's someone at the door of the hospital and it's it's weirdly it's the old uh royal homeopathic hospital in london which i find really odd right because you know this is quite serious scientific um uh piece of work and i'm going to where they you know where, where prince charles gets gets to given his um mad quack <laughs> homeopathy nonsense um God, I've,
1: I've forgotten he was into that
0: yeah yeah i mean they all are i think the um so 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 you go in there and you get your hand you get your hand sanitised and they give you a mask to put on and all that sort of stuff which has been really handy because I now have two masks that I didn't have before um, and the and then you know, they take blood and make sure you haven't already had it and then you, you go home and then a week later they this, they you know once it's been shown that you haven't got it you go back in they 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 sort of mix up their, your own little dose of cocktail of um, vaccine like a cocktail and then they. Uh, they give that to you. It's and it's all, you know, they they have to talk you through this. They have to talk you through, you know, this probably won't happen, but there's, you know, and there's been no chance, examples of it so far. Most people only get a, maybe a little fever, but there is a small chance that you'll have a gigantic anaphylactic fit and land on the floor twitching. So we need you to sit here for 15 minutes just to make sure that doesn't happen. But you know, obviously they have to say all that stuff because it's, you know, part of the ethics review board stuff, but exactly, it was that you know you you know perfectly well it's completely safe and and fine, and they give you yeah. a. Um, uh, it's obviously it's placebo controlled It's controlled. And I shouldn't say placebo because the the non the non intervention arm was a um, meningitis vaccine, to sort of. So that in case I did get some mild reaction to it, because lots of people get a fever or a um, uh, headache right, or something. Yeah. That's they interesting. You, yeah, yeah, they give you they give you a, a, a working vaccine for something else. So that you don't, so that you don't then go, oh well, I've got now I've got twenty four hour headache and fever, probably, you know, and chills and bone aches. It probably wasn't the saline solution. So, so you know, they want you to be as uh, uh, unsure as possible over whether you've had the vaccine or the um, uh, the control. Yeah. Uh, and then yeah, I'm gonna have to go in. Uh, I have just stick this thing up my nose once a week and then walk it up, walk up to a... Um, it has to be like... You have to do it in the morning and get it to the priority post box as soon as possible because otherwise it doesn't... You know, it, it, it'll go off or whatever if you leave it in the thing for too long. And then they, they're going to check me up after one month, three months, six months and a year and see if I've got antibodies and see if I've got the... Um, see if I've had the, the virus. I mean, it's genuinely interesting. And there's a 50-50 chance I've been vaccinated, which is quite cool. Um 50 50 minus the chance, of course, that the vaccine doesn't work. I suppose, but um, and then the the
1: the shame is quite high. I mean, there's lots of different vaccines at trial at the moment, right? And
0: yeah, don't don't harsh my buzz, man. Yeah, but yeah, then the um. Uh, uh, then you know, and if it turns out it does work, and they and they end the trial, then they'll then they'll tell me whether I was on in the placebo or the uh, or, the, or the, the control or the intervention arm, and then they'll give me the real va- uh, vaccine if it does work. So I mean, it's I, I, you know, it's really interesting. It's quite interesting being involved and in sort of seeing this science going on, and they they also they, I, I quite like you know, you sort of see like they, they they the people who are running it obviously realize, crikey, this is this is amazing data set. So we're going to get all this information from all these different people. So they're also. Um, trying all the other things you know seeing what else they can get they're getting getting us to do an exposure questionnaire each week say you know have you been in a room with other people for more than five hours this week have you um been uh, working have you been on public transport and then and presumably and so then they can get at least you know it'll be self-report data so it won't be super reliable but they can at least you know if if it turns out that there's a gigantic difference in the number of people who clicked yes i've been to the pub and they all get you know the virus, or loads of them get the virus, and they can so then you can learn other things about the behaviour of the virus from mm-hmm. this study because there's this, you know, there's going to be ten thousand, know, n equals ten thousand or something, uh, sample size, and so, so there's a real opportunity to get loads of information, not just about whether this specific vaccine works, but about loads of other things. And I, I think it's it's really interesting seeing them sort of piggyback all these other things on the on the back yeah. of this one study.
1: It makes sense because if you're the sort of person who's Signed up to have something injected into your body, you're probably you're probably the sort of person who doesn't mind filling out a few extra surveys. Yes,
0: yes, exactly. We are the, ner- ner- the nerdy way of contributing to society, isn't it? So yeah, so I was I was really pleased to be able to help out a bit, and and like I say, it's it's, it's a bit of enlightened self-interest in that it means that I'm more likely to actually have the vaccine, which means I'm more likely to be able to, I don't know relax a bit when I go and visit grandparents and things like that, you know, take my kids to see their grandparents um, so yeah, so it, it, it's, I've, I've, re- I've enjoyed it is definitely the wrong word, uh, it has been completely horrible jabbing things into my face in this really unpleasant <laughs> way, but it's been, it's been really interesting and, and, slight, uh, and has the nice sort of double sided bonus of being both yeah. good for society and also uh,
1: in my own self interest you know <laughs> Um, is there? Do you, Do you know much about the um, the vaccine itself? How it works? Is it? Because um, I'm just trying to think. I'm not. I'm not an immunologist by any stretch. But um, I know that there's there are different kinds of vaccines. I know that there's one which was being tet- tried, which is an RNA vaccine. Is, is yes, this, that this one? is
0: not that one. I think that is the Imperial. Okay, um, I did write a big thing about what all the different vaccines were, and I've now written so many different things about. Covid nineteen. <laughs> I've completely forgotten. That's all right. We don't need um, to go into the details of the
1: biology, yeah, but no, this but, yeah.
0: this this one this one is an adenovirus. So they are using um, another. I th- well, I, I think a sort of a cold virus, rather like um, right. I don't know if it is itself a coronavirus, but a, 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 a sort of a it is an adenovirus of a cold which infects I think some kind of monkey, um, and it. Uh, um, so they they what they, they, they they've altered it so that it can, can no longer spread, you know, can no longer infect um, humans or possibly, I think possibly not even duplicate. So it can't duplicate within, um, yeah, kind of, can't even duplicate within your body. It would be pretty bad if it did, I suppose, actually. So, um, obviously not do that. And then they, um, uh, have, have taken the protein from the spike. You know, the famous picture of the coronavirus has spikes coming off. It basically it looks like an old sea mine, like the things in, um, finding Nemo, that the sharks get blown up by, um, <laughs> and uh the little the spikes on the coming off the c mine shape are the are this particular protein which it uses to sort of interlock with cells or go into cells so they taken that so that protein recreated it and put it onto this adenovirus um and then hopefully the so, the, the, the hope is yeah that the the, the your immune system will learn that virus that 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 protein from this uh, the adenovirus and then when it turns up for real in the form of the coronavirus it will be sort of have the troops ready to go and attack it um Mm. so you know knock on wood and so on but that's the idea anyway
1: so so essentially to just boil what that boils down to is they've taken a covid19 or a SARS-CoV-2 protein Mm. stuck it on a cold virus and and that's what they're hoping is going to Um, our immune systems are going to... or the immune systems of the participants will
0: recognise. Yes, you make that sound extremely low-tech, as I'm sure it's incredibly difficult (laughs) and complicated, (laughs) but, um, uh, yeah, that that is exactly what they do.
1: I don't know how they they come up with these ideas, but they're Mm. they're, Mm. they're (laughs) They're very interesting. (laughs) Um, Okay, so we're living through a time where, perhaps more than ever, the general public is relying on statistics produced by the media, the government, and ultimately by scientists to inform how they should behave in public. One of the key stats during the pandemic has been the R value, uh, otherwise known as the reproduction number, which tells us the average number of people that an infected person is spreading the virus to. This value has been fluctuating over time, uh, but can you explain uh, why the R value increasing may not always mean that the virus is getting further out of control?
0: Yeah, um, well, this was... This was uh, really interesting uh, because, well, there was one particular point in, oh gosh, uh, probably April or thereabouts. I should have brought, I should have my pieces up in front of me, really. But the um, uh, when it was noted, uh, and Professor John Edmonds said this on in a, a House of Commons Select Committee um, hearing that the. Uh, uh the uh, r value had gone up from him but he, he said it was probably between 0.8 and one or something like that and if you'd asked him a couple of weeks ago it would probably have said it was been 0.6 and nine so it has been going up um, and that sounds bad right because it sounds like the number of person the people the average person has infected has gone um, <laughs> has gone up but it, it, the trouble is it's well firstly the r value is really confusing when when you've got hundreds of thousands of people, uh with the disease and spreading it then it really the average really matters but there's there it can go wrong in very in various ways or become confusing in various ways at the moment for instance there's really very few people who have the disease in the uk uh or in most of you know western europe really and there was a slightly horrifying bit uh, about a couple of weeks um before i was speaking to you where the in germany um, the R-value suddenly leapt up to 3.5. It had been at sort of 0.7 or 0.9 or something. It suddenly leapt up to 3.5. Everyone's going, what the hell's going on here? Um, but all that had happened was literally one meat packing plant in Dusseldorf or somewhere had, um, I shouldn't say in Dusseldorf, somewhere somewhere in Germany, not some rat, no, anyway. And, the, and the, the, it, it had a huge outbreak. It's something like a 1,000 people got uh, got the virus and they were all traced and and uh, and, and it was con- you know contained and so on but for that one day that brought the average because there are so few people around the country that one local outbreak brought the average number of infected per person up from 0.8 to 3 or something like that so so when you're dealing with small numbers of infections these single super spreader events can gigantically alter the overall um, uh, the overall sort of effect the overall size of the r value what also happened what was what's complicated and this is a thing And see if i can see if i can explain simpson's paradox on the radio it's going to sound it's, you know normally you're supposed to do it with diagrams and everything but this will will give it our best shot um what also happened back in may was when uh, professor john edmonds was talking about it the the number the the, the, the there there were sort of two separate um Quasi, quasi-independent uh, epidemics going on there was one in the in the wider community and there was one in care homes and hospitals and the one in care homes and hospitals had a naturally somewhat higher R it was spreading more easily around these enclosed spaces like hospitals and care homes than it does in the wider community where people can be outside um, and in both places the actual number of people getting it who had the disease was dropping but because it was dropping faster in the um, uh in the wider community, the impact of the smaller number in care homes was going up so if you imagine there's um ten people in care in hospital in the community who each give it to two people and there's uh ten people in the in the care homes who each give it to three people then the average you know the, the, the average is what two point five or something like that but then if it goes down to there's only one person in in the community who has it and they have then they give it on average to Uh, To I don't know one person, then and then and the the number in the care homes only drops to five, and they're only giving it two point five. Then even though there are fewer people, the average of those all those people added together will go up because the um, number of number in the care homes. Have, it m- makes up more of the total, and even though the R in each of the each of those two separate places has dropped, the average R f- across all the people has gone up. It's a weird paradox, which actually is completely easy and straightforward to explain when you can just point at a graph or a chart. Um, but it, when you're trying to <laughs> yeah. when you're trying to I talk it through on the radio, for the no. yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, maybe if you can if you can uh, link to it or something in the show notes. I don't know if that's a thing you do. Um, but oh, yeah, the do,
1: yeah.
0: yeah, but the um, so it actually it it, it, it meant that. There were lots of headlines in, you know, all the British media, which is sort of understandable, right? Because you don't expect, um, you can't expect m- mainstream journalists to be statisticians or to un- have a grasp of every single weird statistical anomaly that goes on. And they've been told, look, the R value is really important. If it goes up, that's bad. If it goes down, that's less bad. Um, and then it goes up, and you sort of reasonably enough go, well, that you just said that was bad, but there is this complicating factor and various complicating factors. And I think you know you can get around it a bit by just sort of saying like, let's worry about the number of cases or better still the number of hospitalizations and or better still the number of deaths because the, these are really sort of hard to mess up um metrics or, or they're harder anyway but the it is it is any one of them has its own difficulties because if you look at deaths, then that's lagging gigantically behind what's actually going on if you look at hospitalizations that's lagging somewhat and you know and if you look at cases it's uh, dependent heavily on how your how good your testing regime is so there's it, it's it's really hard to find you know it's you, you want to, as a journalist to express this really difficult situation as clearly as possible in a in simple terms to readers but mm. there are <laughs> any simple term won't you know any any single measure that you use is necessarily going to lose a lot of the detail and the sort of information that you need and yet you can't explain loads and loads of different statistical um, uh, problems to in every single piece you write for, in 600 words for the Sky News website. You know, it doesn't it doesn't work like that. So it is. I do, I do feel very sympathetic to journalists try, who who got this wrong or overestimated things because uh, I, I, th- I think that's a really understandable problem to make.
2: Yeah, I think that's really interesting. Um, I suppose like one question I had, um, knowing you were coming on the show, was that you know what do you see? I suppose, is the role or the responsibility of journalists when they're reporting data like this. You know, obviously, journalism is a huge industry and people have very different specialities. But, you know, a lot of people are reading articles at the moment, I think, particularly. Um, so, yeah, I kind of wondered what your opinion was on that,
0: really. Yeah, I would... I would, I. would. I, my, my opinion sways all over the place. I um, <laughs> I, I. So, I, I think the, the responsibility of journalists is to try and give uh the okay so the, the the responsibility of journalists has got to be to try and make to inform their readers as best as possible with as, as close to the sort of an accurate picture of what is going on as, uh, as they can give in the constraints of time and sort of reader background knowledge that they can do right and space yeah. and all these things there but it is you know uh uh, as, as i remember vaguely from my philosophy degree many years ago you know ought implies can if you you know you, you to say that journalists ought to do this there are limits there are hard limits on what they can do given their own you know training and ability if you've been trained to um find out you know who, who's you know political gossip sounds like i'm belittling it but you know if, you, if you're if you're a political journalist <laughs> yeah. and your and your job has been to sort of work, work on the uh, on you know uh, educational policy even or or, if, or you know the the likely likely who's likely to win the next uh, election or all that sort of stuff then you you'll have some skills that are useful to dealing with this situation but some that are just not and it's mm. not it's a bit unfair to say and now you should be able to go to pluck out you know uh, a, a strong opinion about simpsons paradox or um
1: Yes. I, I don't know the, the, <laughs> the,
0: the, the, the <laughs> epidemiology, yeah, and suddenly, you should, so it's a lot. It's a lot to suddenly swerve direct across to that. That said, like my own experience, and it's obviously highly un, non-representative, is that readers. There's there, there's an old saying in journalism: you should never overestimate a reader's knowledge or underestimate their intelligence. Right? You should you should you should always assume that they're bright and that they can understand stuff, but they don't have the background knowledge that you so you'll have to explain stuff, and I I have found, and you know who knows who, there's loads of people who just read my stuff and go I haven't got a clue what this weirdo's talking about just and just move past. But the ones who get back to me, and this is obviously selecting on dependent variable a bit, but they, the ones who get back to me is uh, you know they seem to find it, that you can, that it, that these are complex things, but if you talk people through them with straightforward examples and um, sort of uh, direct analogies, then you can get almost everyone in my experience, to understand things like, the, you know, why the R, you know, Simpsons Paradox and the R value. So the responsibility of journalists, in as far as they can, is to explain things like why numbers are uncertain, to explain why it's hard for us to get a, um, you know, to get a clear picture of, you know, why, why, I don't know, the infection fatality rate is different from the case fatality rate and why the one, the one depends on testing regimes and all this. You know, th- these, these things can be explained to people. It just requires slowly working them through the, The sort of the background knowledge they need to get there and and my own experience is that that's really doable and that people are you know great they'd rather be told this is why we're not confident and this is why we don't know than being confidently told this is definitely the case and then finding out a week later that actually it definitely you know wasn't the case and things more complicated than that you know my own experience is that is that people are pretty good at getting the hang of uncertainty and complexity and not knowing why we don't know things you know
2: yeah definitely i think um you know, as it's a situation where there are so many uncertainties and things are changing really quickly, I think yeah, it's really important to kind of say you know we don't know the answer to everything,
0: mm. and
2: that's fine. Um, how have you approached this as a journalist writing on this topic? I suppose uh, or
0: yeah,
1: no, I well, mean, can, uh, my, can my, I just sorry. say as well before you answer that? I think part of the reason for the public. Especially at this time, it's like, this is a topic that li- affects literally everyone. So perhaps yeah. people are more inclined than usual to um, read the the complex answers to complex situations than they might otherwise be when consuming news. I, I don't know uh, if you have an opinion on that, Tom.
0: I definitely do have an opinion on that because uh, now my wife and I listen to More or Less together, and you know, which we never we never did before. Now, now More or Less has become absolute... You know, I, I've always listened to it because I'm a nerd, but my wife is less of a nerd. <laughs> And suddenly, we, suddenly it's you know we'll oh have you listened to more or less yet no we'll what, listen to what, it together. What's, what's more or less? Or oh, more? sorry. Good heavens! Good heavens, man. <laughs> uh, Radio Four, um, Tim Harford, uh, The Economist, Tim Harford. Uh, um, uh, they're they're sort of looking at numbers in the news and establishing which ones are nonsense, basically. Um, it's, it's right, uh, right. You've, oh god! If you read anything I've ever written, you should go 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 listen to them. That's <laughs> they're, they're, oh, yeah. they're fantastic. Good, good um, yeah. Uh, so so yeah, absolutely. People are more. You know, every time I speak to their friends as well, it's, it's, it's like I, they're, well, they're they're all suddenly more interested. You know, they're asking me, thinking as, as though I'll well know, but you know, things about um, coronavirus and things. But yeah, my, my the way I approach it in answer to your earlier, well, no, okay, so I'll, I'll go back. I'll I'll I'll, I'll get So yes, absolutely, people are more interested in this. I've noticed this in my own work i mean less now i think you know now we're sort of in the we're past the panic period of um, everyone trying to readjust to this mad new world and now i'm you know I've, I've i've written four articles in a row that didn't or that weren't centrally about covid19 which I, I honestly i for about three months i didn't think i'd ever do write anything that wasn't ever again um <laughs> and but now you know now i'm writing about i don't know um the implicit associations test, or whatever I did this morning. You know, so so people people are now less sort of, but for a while it was. I'd I write something about the R value. You know, the R value one had tens or hundreds of thousands of readers, and that is just gigantic. F- about for this sort of really quite abstruse uh, statistical point. Um, in answer to your question, Joe, about how how I approach it, uh, the way I've always approached journalism or science journalism, anyway. Um, is a, a sort of translator, I guess. You go and speak to really clever people, and you write down what they say, and then you try and make it um, accessible to a more general readership. Because you speak to someone who's a, a world expert in the impact of social media on uh, uh, psychology, social media and psychology, or whatever like that. And they might be absolutely brilliant, but they they have, they've, they're used to writing scientific papers. They have they haven't had a fifteen years or however god however long i've been doing this of trying to write things for um general audiences so they don't have you know they've got they've got what stephen pinker calls the curse of knowledge of sort of they just just you don't know what other people don't know so you drop in the jargon and none of it makes sense whereas i you get that imagine speaking to the ai guys quite a lot yeah
2: i work in the comms team so (laughs) at the cheering so yeah
0: yeah. (laughs) no exactly And, and it's and it's sort of the the
1: complicated like scientists thing. with our
0: jargon what we like I know, yeah. I know. but it's you have to use jargon because you need to compress complicated things into short bits you know if, if, yeah, if you if you constantly if you had to always explain what um neural networks were or something like that some less basic example i don't know the then the, then you your scientific papers would be 400 pages long every time and it would be no use to anyone so you need to use these simple things that sort of tag this is a complex idea here. But that we don't, you know, the general audience doesn't have sort of access to those, to that jargon. So we, they need it all explained to someone else, but explained through someone else. And my job is, I, I think, to speak to these clever people. Uh, I'm trying, you know, and I, I'm well versed enough in science and sort of have a reasonable gr- grounding in most of it to be able to ask the sensible questions that then. Can then sort of you know, push the scientists into the areas that I think will be interesting, and then I can then turn that into something which, you know, normal humans can read. I literally describe myself as a translator between scientists and human, and I, um, <laughs> and I think that is. I don't know, there's also, there are loads of other ways to do good science journalism, there is investigative science journalism going and finding out malpractice people like Stephanie Lee at Buzzfeed are fantastic at that Um, and I've done a bit of that and I think it's really worthwhile but I think I, I just, the thing I enjoy doing is explaining stuff to people uh, and that involves understanding it and that involves going to speak to someone and getting it explained to me. And so uh, I, I, th- I find that I find that really fulfilling and interesting. And I just like, you know, I love, I love the sense of becoming a sort of quasi expert in something for 24 hours and then forgetting all of it and moving on to something else. Um, <laughs> That's what we're trying
1: to do. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So, Tom, one of the main challenges for the world's governments during the pandemic has been how to balance the risks presented by the virus itself. Uh, and those associated with measures taken against the virus, most obviously the lockdown. Mm. Whilst journalists aren't the one making the decisions at the end of the day, their words, of course, have an impact on the public perception of relative risks. How do you think about how uh, to write about risk as an informed data journalist? Uh, For example, you've written a bit about the particular problem of school closures Mm -hmm. and how these have been detrimental to mental and physical health of children, and you conclude a recent article with, "quote, the societal costs are mounting, and the risks of reopening schools in a managed way look small."
0: Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, I, I should declare my my interests here, which is I've got two small children of, uh, <laughs> you know, nursery and uh, nursery age, just coming to the end of nursery, and uh, just coming to the end of year one, and. Thank uh, you
1: absolutely sick of them basically <laughs> sick of the sight of the little brat
0: no 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 they, they've, been, they've actually been um they've, they've been great and really like coped well but it was really tough you know especially the older one it's really tough on him missing his friends you know and now he's back at school two days a week and it's well he was he was already sort of getting a bit better but it's it really made it's made him so much happier and made him you know, you know not he's not yeah, I don't know. So, so there's a, there's it's a big bit of me that's aware that I will leap on any news that says schools are safe and and just quietly ignore any bits that don't that say it's not. You know, but I, I do think. So, uh, speaking to an epidemiologist, early-ish on in all this, back in March or something like that. Um, uh, for a well, for, for a piece I did for the, for, for unheard, but also I, I did a radio show for um, Radio Four, and he's made the point that every Epidemiological or public health intervention needs to be assessed on two fronts: one, the good it will do, but also the harm it will do. Like if you if you um, ban um, fizzy drinks, you will you might reduce obesity, but you will also cost lots of people. You know well, you'll you know cause an impact to um, the economy, and you'll you know, make a lot of people not be able to have a thing they want. You know, which is makes them presumably makes them happy because they can have it. Um, and the the lockdown is a just an absolutely sort of prime example of this because it will reduce and has reduced and you know knock on wood will continue to reduce the um, the number of deaths and the number of uh, hospitalizations and generally the awful impact of this disease. But it will also you know it, it will also have a gigantic economic effect and the economic effect is. Means people, you know, uh, well, it means people out of work. It means people that like, get, you know, the, the people haven't been going to hospitals. People not, kids, kids not in school, are losing out on 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 education, and these are it, it gets portrayed as you know money versus lives, but it's not because uh, the economy is people's lives. People falling out of um, work, you know, is a gigantic blow to their life. And then you know, if the economy goes down, there won't be money in the NHS and people, uh, you know, long term depressions. Weirdly enough, recessions don't seem to have uh, long uh, negative impacts on life expectancy. But long, to, you know, in general, the uh, correlation between a um uh, economic growth and life expectancy is pretty solid so if we have a long-term decline in in, in the economy then we can expect a decline in life expectancy and uh, gr- raising uh, you know chronic conditions and all this sort of stuff it is absolutely lives versus lives and you need to compare these things one against the other and talk about you know if you just say the lockdown will save x lives and don't ta- say what num- you know the, what number of um Uh, what what the costs will be on the other side, then you're not giving a full picture. And, you know, if if there was no other side, then why not just have a lockdown forever so we don't ever have a, um, you know, ever have any sort of epidemic ever again, just keep everyone in their houses all the time. That is obviously not good, right? (laughs) So, um, so, yeah, so uh, I I feel it's really, really important to talk about both the... uh, the positive gains, the ga- you know, it's it's cost-benefit analysis. It's really as straightforward as that. You know, you, the the likely outcome, uh, the the gains multiplied by probability versus the uh, the costs multiplied multiplied by probability, and then which is bigger and which is and, and, and it's really hard to do. And you have to do these big assumptions and and really complicated uh, sort of um, you know these the, the models that have gigantic uh, uh, hundreds of variables and complicated. Um, Assumptions and everything that spit out these numbers, which are at best, you know, with huge uncertainty intervals, and you're making gigantic decisions under enormous uncertainty. And I'm really, really glad it's not me having to do it. But you, you do have to take into account both the the benefit, the likely benefits, and the likely costs. Is really the very basic point that I'm making. I,
1: I, I think you know this is something that even the top scientists, the experts, find really, really hard um, to do in a in a completely rational uh, data savvy way and then the fact that we've got both policymakers and journalists sort of thrust into the situation of having to represent that science or you know write a narrative on it themselves um, you know it's understandable that not everyone's necessarily going to be doing it perfectly <laughs> and there's going to be a lot of confusion and and you know different stories being told about what's
0: going on yeah yeah i I, I, like it's also i mean like anything like this it comes down to personal senses of risk or personal sort of um excuse me personal comfort with risk personal uh you know how important to you being able to go to the pub is and that sort of stuff i mean you know you could you know it is not that Going to the pub is worth, you know, the the, you know, the, the, the risk of killing. You go to the pub, there is a risk that that will kill someone, right? That is, is as straightforward as that. There is a small chance that if you go to the pub, there is a risk that you will spread the virus to someone who dies. That is that is an unavoidable fact of the matter, and then you have to decide what is the level of risk of that happening that I am comfortable with, and it is not zero. It is it is literally you know it sounds ridiculous that you are happy to accept the risk of killing someone for going for going to the pub but you are we all are that is inherent we are we we every every time we go to the pub there is a chance we could um well give someone some other uh virus for going out or by or you know step out in front of a car and they swerve and crash and die or something like that there was always, everything we do in life has some small number of some small level of risk attached to ourselves and to others um, and it is always about the level of comfort we have with the risk we take and the benefits that we gain. I, I, my, I have to cross. You know, we live less than two hundred yards from our our kid's school. We have to cross two very, very small roads to get to it, which you know. Uh, and there is a tiny chance that one, one of us will get hit by a car on that road. But we, I judge the that infinitesimally tiny risk. Very worth it every day for the um, gains of education, taking my children to school, and the gains of me being able to get some work done by getting them away from the house. You know, it is. Uh, so, you do have to make this really cold hearted, but nonetheless real and necessary decision about personal comfort with risk, but, you know, with, with all these things. Like, for some people, so, so, so being social and going to the pub is an important and valuable part of their life, and that. Is worth some one in twenty thousand risk that they it'll be the. Although time I guess
1: there there's, there are slightly two different things at play here because on the one hand yeah there's going to be differences in people's comfort with risk not, if everyone's on the same page about what the risk is but then of course there's the also there's the other thing which is that people could disagree about the risks um, and especially when the science isn't clear I mean especially at the start of the pandemic. Um, People are certainly not on the same page as each other. Oh, well, I mean, people still are not on the, Not on the same page, and no. that's not just the fault of people, and it's not the fault of you know scientists. I mean, it's just it's just hard to <laughs> to get yeah. it exactly right. Yeah. Well,
0: no, there's a joke, you know, there's that. People can. It isn't well. I suppose in theory, if you literally had access to all of the available information about COVID from around the world and could collate it into one place. And give it, give that to everyone, and they could all read it through perfectly. Then, in theory, there would be a fact of the matter about what the best guess is on risk, right? There, there, in theory, that would somehow, you know, you could sort of some, somehow if you could, could package that all up into one block of here is the information. You read it all, but firstly, well, firstly, secondly, and lastly, that's not possible, right? That's not possible. You can't give all that information to everyone. So everyone gets, even you know, the best epidemiologists in the world, the best virologists, they're all getting. Some information, more than most of us. The best, you know, science journalists are getting some information. They're trying to collate it and try and make a best guess. And so there are reasonable differences of opinion or difference, of difference of understanding about how dangerous the disease is. Some of it will be led by our own personalities and biases and things. And you know, I, I, th- I think you know a lot of people now saying that things like the uh, the infection fatality rate is 0.1% are probably going to end up being wrong because. We've had sixty thousand deaths in the UK, and there are sixty million people in the UK. That's about one in a thousand. So, if everyone's ha- unless everyone's already had it, but you know, th- it is still it is still possible. There's something else going on, and I, I don't want to sort of tell people they are completely mad and wrong. But it, it, as the disease has gone on, we have been able to sort of narrow down, I think, what the likely risks are and make better decisions based on that. But it will, will there'll will never come a point when we say okay, we've got all the information and now we know that it is correct that you should not go to the pub. It will always be, we now have all this information and this is the level of risk that going to the pub means you have to make a decision about how comfortable you are with that and then society will decide whether the people who make the decision to go to the pub anyway whether they're being sort of unacceptably selfish and then they'll be publicly shamed and all that sort of stuff but the, uh, the um, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, Shamed at the, the
2: pub
1: <laughs> Yeah yeah. So, um, there's, so yeah. There's always going, We're always going to have a better idea of this uh, of the risks as more data comes out and we're in the future um, you could say, I'm going to make a terrible joke that you get 2020 hindsight but
0: Yes. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, um, the, the 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 that year. I, was, I have to say, I've been seeing a surprisingly small number of twenty twenty vision jokes going around. I guess because it just seems <laughs> so just too obvious. bad. That's the problem. yeah. But I'm, I'm pleased that you felt able to do it, it as a safe
1: space. here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> My producer, who's currently on mute, will have to edit that part out for <laughs> me to save face. <laughs> yeah. Um. So, what are some of the challenges that the UK and other countries face? when deciding uh, which policies to adopt to mitigate the spread of COVID-19 and which lockdown measures to ease uh, when there's so much still unknown about exactly how the virus spreads. Is it possible for governments to run controlled experiments or do we have to rely on looking at how things have been done in different countries and try to extrapolate what works from that?
0: I think uh, I, I, I... I don't want to speak for ethics boards of universities around the country, but like, and it depends what, you know, of course you can run a controlled experiment on a vaccine trial, but can you run a controlled experiment on school closures, for instance? I mean, how would you do that? Would you randomize local authorities? Um, I I could not see that getting past an ethics board. Um, You you probably have more experience with ethics boards than I do, but the, you know, the, um, I think that sort of thing is really unlikely to be acceptable, um, which is a shame in on many ways, because then you could find, you could get this information much quicker. What you can do, and what has been really handy, I mean, so with masks, for instance, um, Germany being federal, uh, and I, th- I think even at lower than federal level, but certainly at federal level, they they the mask policy was introduced not by the German German government, but by the at these at these lower lower more local levels, and then. You could you can use that as a sort of uh, natural experiment, sort of quasi experimental design, and see like, oh look the the country uh, the the states or departments where the um, uh, master introduced earlier they see uh, drop off in uh, infect, inf- infectious rates earlier um, and they you know the, the, and then you can sort of get finer finer grain detail and that and that these sort of things will um, create these natural experiments and I think that you know that is a good reason to. Hand out some control to lower authority, you know, to to the lower level, more local authorities. If we, if we had, if we said, and to some degree, I think I suppose we have. There is, but it goes down to schools and things. If we said, if we said to local authorities, you can open schools or not as you choose from this date, um, and then keep an eye on which local authorities had uh, had, you know, had schools open. Does it does it impact things? Then you can um, keep an eye on. You know, then you can you, you hopefully use that data to change things. The, the trouble is. That um, we uh, we did um, we did several things at once uh, when we so reopening schools happened. I think it was first of June or thereabouts. We reopened schools, but we also reopened some small shops. We uh, allowed people to meet in certain in groups bigger than they had before, um, and even if that had been uh, doled out to sort of local level, then the sort of the sort of basic scientific principle of changing one variable at a time and seeing what that effect that has has already been violated and make the um the statistical side of it much messier sort of the the real in in real terms your sample size is much uh, smaller if you've got like how many 60 odd um local authorities might be might be very no, more than 60 odd hundreds of local authorities and um uh and but still you know they they're all changing these various things all at once so you wouldn't be able to get this nice clean signal that said on the other hand because you know like i say you have got to consider the risk and benefit if they had introduced all these different measures one by one over you know and then had a three week gap for each one to see um the impact when you uh you know on the death rate or even the hospitalization rate then you'd be introducing one thing every three weeks and we wouldn't get back to normal until the middle of next year or something and it would be just completely unacceptable. So there's a balance to be struck between the the scientific, um, sort of the, get the, the usefulness scientifically of getting the sort of data out of it and then being able to inform future policy. And then on the other side, there's a, um, a straightforward: we we can't keep the economy locked down like this forever because that will be worse than the disease, right? And it will, it definitely will be at some point, uh, not some not too distant point. This is not this is this is a tightrope. Uh, I think they uh, what's his face, Chris Chris Whitty. Um, described it as you know there's, there's a tightrope you're walking whether you stray off one side or the other it's bad and and and, and, if, and to be fairness even if you stay on the tightrope it's still pretty bad but it's it gets worse whichever way you go so yeah so it, it is not and um you can't i don't think do on of the sort of policy things you're thinking of of school shutdowns reopening football grounds i don't know um you know uh, restaurants whatever you can't do you can't reasonably do randomized control trials? I don't think you could get that past an ethics board. Um, you can do these sort of quasi experimental things where you uh, sort of farm it out to lower authorities and hope that uh, a natural experimental design comes out of it. Um, but even that, if you you know, you, you want then what you want to do that one thing at a time for maximum scientific value, but you can't do it one thing at a time because that buggers everything up from the econ- e- econ- economic point of view. So, again, tight ropes and trade offs and difficult things.
1: Do you, do you think at least there there's been an intelligent discussion about which things to change might be reasonably grouped together to have like the least likelihood of being <laughs> variables which are going to be conflicting with each other? Oh God, I hope so. I just really hope so. I, I don't
0: know. Like I, this is where this is where we do need political journalists who can tell you. Um, I know. Um, oh, Matthew Dancona did a really a, a tortoise, which is. Um, one of uh, unheard's fierce rivals, and I probably shouldn't plug them, but Matthew Duncan did a really, really interesting um, piece, and then basically read his piece out as a podcast for their um, for their uh, podcast, obviously. And they he, he um, did a thing about like what was going on when Boris Johnson was being hospitalised and near death with the uh, with COVID, and he just spoke to loads of cabinet ministers and people off the record, and and they were all telling him there was just chaos. And no one was in charge, and no one knew what was going on, and it sounded completely awful. And that, and you know, you can't. I can speak to as many epidemiologists as I like, but I'll never learn that from some off-the-record cabinet minister, right? And uh, I think the, I really hope that people, you know, really hope that people have been having these difficult conversations. I certainly get the impression that Chris Whitty and Patrick Vallance and Jenny Harries are, you know, serious grown-ups who are aware of. You know, but it's, it, you can can look at a, a value and all that sort of stuff and know what it means. Obviously, I bloody hope so. Um, but I'm not sure that there's that many people in the current government. And this is just, I'm now just talking from my own political bias, right? This is just my political opinion about this bunch of people who seem to have been largely selected for loyalty on the Brexit issue rather than competence. And I don't think necessarily that any of them are sort of independent, the sort of independent minded, big brain, sort of big, sort of thoughtful people who you want in this sort of situation. You have, the, you know, they just strike me as extremely bad at this precise thing. Um, but I don't have any inside knowledge on that. I don't have any um, sort of special insight. I, I just, just don't get, you know, it's just, I'm just getting it purely <laughs> from the outside and from the news and from occasionally yeah, from speaking yeah. to journalist friends and that. But yeah, it's it's not, it's, I don't have any special insight.
1: I think there's something to be said for how surprising it is, perhaps to just, and I'm saying this more as a member of the public than as a, I don't know, than as, a, than as a scientist specifically, but that in 2020, um, and this this doesn't just apply to the current British government, but I guess all or most governments in the world, the fact that that one person being out of action <laughs> is yeah. actually a problem, like, yeah. should, I mean, just because he happens to be the leader. I mean, if it, if a CEO of a company is is ill, yeah. is that such a big problem? Can't that you know everyone does not everything just carry on? Um. Well,
0: yeah. I mean, this is the thing. I mean, in, in every other, in, I, I, I don't. And you you always like you always look back, and politicians of the past seem you know that's just a sign of me getting old, I guess. But you know, I don't know. You know, if if Tony Blair, if it had happened during Tony Blair's. Reign, not the right word um, you know to his premiership then uh, you you know that there are other big sort of powerful, you know and, and you know what's of word I'm looking for Hoy but serious people around him who could have taken over and stepped in and you know you wouldn't imagine Gordon Brown going oh what should we do till Tony gets back uh, that, but you, you whereas with this lot it is definitely he's, he's built a cabinet around him and around yeah. so, so, so I, I don't know now, yeah. <laughs> I am I should I should stay out of it shouldn't I I should stay out it's not it's not my view I just I just sort of don't get the impression that it is Mm. Um, lots of grown-ups in a room, but I might be completely wrong. It might be totally yeah. unfair, and it's just I mean, me being bitter.
1: Yeah, uh, but I think yeah, like, like I said, re- regardless of that, it shouldn't matter. That's mm. the organizational structure should be such that whoever the people are, it's, it's less of an issue. But yeah, I mean, so it should like, be resilient. And it it's was not it's res- a bit of a bit of a tangent there, but <laughs> anyway, back to back to other things. I'm back there. to COVID nineteen. Yeah. Uh, yeah, an easier topic to talk about.
2: Yeah, yeah. a cheerier topic. A yeah. <laughs>
1: um okay so uh, my final question on the topic of COVID-19 then um and this this will be more of your opinion but based on everything you've learned um on the research you've done for your recent articles um given the state of things like contact tracing efforts uh and and other policies that are, that are going on in the UK um how likely do you think it is that we'll see a, a second wave of COVID-19 in the UK Oh no! Oh no!
0: This sort of thing, I should do like um, one of those uh, Philip Tetlock style uh, super forecasting things and say sixty percent and all that sort of stuff. But I'm going to be quite cowardly and say I don't know because there's so much like uncertainty about you know, see, it, it, uncertainty about what will happen when winter comes around again. At the moment, it, if you look in, I saw someone saying today, you know, if you look in Texas, it seems to be taking off, and that. The one hypothesis is that's because in the Texans, Texas summer everyone stays indoors, um, and that's when it, and that's what makes it spread, or whether it's to do with you know then 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 while there's, there's, well, it's nice and everyone's outdoors here it'll be all right, and then we get to winter and everyone not you know people won't be able to drink in parks or sit in pub gardens or whatever. Um, so <sighs> my instinct, I remember I did I did write about this and I did and I I, I suppose I said it would seem pretty unlikely. Because, and one thing that someone pointed out was that it's not coming to you, out, coming out, coming at you out of a clear blue sky anymore. People have there are there are long term differences in behaviour that we all have. I mean, I, 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 it'll be a long time before I shake someone's hand again, right? Uh, just just that's just been knocked out of um, normal behaviour now. Standing really close to someone inside their house, I did for a little bit. I uh, still not that close, but you know, like a meter or so away, in, around a friend's house recently, and it felt weird. It felt weird, and I didn't like it. Um, and uh, any sort of being indoors or close-up, you know, it, 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 this will take us, it's like when you break your arm or something, and overnight your behaviour changes from using your hand to not using your hand, and then it takes you, even once your arm is back and built, or my or my knee, I'm sure, you know, it, t- it takes you years to, to sort of trust it again, and to behave as though, it like you did beforehand. And it'll it'll be like that. It'll be this you know charting on a graph. Our behaviour will have a change in a sudden sudden spike of change, and then slowly tail off and into, into the way it goes back. Or so I assume. And um, so I think that is a you know we'll we'll be super wary. Where people are constantly looking out for R value changes and uh, hospitalisation data, and everyone cares about this stuff, and everyone is scared. So yeah, I think that in a, in itself will be enough to. Keep, you know, keep people keep uh, a full scale like it was in March and April. Um, uh, second wave away. That said, there are loads and loads of people who, you know, it looks like loads and loads of people. Ninety, 90 plus percent of the population doesn't seem to have had the disease. The disease. Uh, if we manage to get a vaccine soon, then maybe we avoid, they don't all have to have it. But otherwise, everyone's going to have to have it eventually, and. There's no realistic way around that, so it might not be a second wave, but there'll be a bloody long plateau or something. It's, some, it's you know, this is this is some, something's going to happen in the next year, which is either a vaccine, a second wave, or yeah. um, just an endless trudge of slightly weirded out life for
1: the, well, <laughs> the future. I guess, I guess, the other potential thing, although at a global scale, just isn't realistic, would be for everyone who is infected to not infect anyone else just through. Through isolating, if, if we could somehow coordinate that perfectly, but yeah, yeah, I but, guess I just, mean, just won't I mean,
0: like, it's, yeah. Ending smallpox was a gigantic multi-year thing, well, you know, decade, multi-decadal thing. Even after, yeah, you know, when, when was it ended? It was like just before, I, you know, uh, only, only a few years before I was born. I think in the seventies, sometime, um, might have been fifties. And they and they they, you know, they had smallpox vaccine since the eighteen. 18- what, 1860s you know yeah. uh, it took um 100 years thereabouts to end smallpox smallpox was never as prevalent in the pop- well it was probably comparably prevalent actually uh, you know uh, in in the in the population to um covid-19 no i think it, you know about 10% of people got it in their lifetime it was not as not as infectious it was not as widespread it was uh, and this, um, I'm sure someone will correct me, and if, if I'm wrong about these, but you know, it is a, it is a comparable size problem. Took a hundred years to get rid of with a vaccine. We are not going to be able to get rid of this um, with just getting everyone in every country in the world out of you know out of circulation. I mean, you, how do you do that in India? You know, like, it's just mm. not possible. There isn't a social safety net to support the people who are. Um, uh, going to have to stay off work for however long there's just there's far small far more people crammed into far smaller spaces it's, I, I i think it is spectacularly unlikely that that would happen so yeah i mean that is that is a theoretical fourth option but i think it is very much on the extreme end of theoretically possible
2: yeah and i suppose you know so many people are asymptomatic with it aren't they as well mm. so You'd have to seriously up the testing, the
0: testing game, and again, again, how do you do that in sub-Saharan Africa or exactly. in you know, places that don't have uh, as as sort of well-supported health systems as we do, or the West, you know, the West, rich West does. I, I, like, even and, yeah, exactly, I, I, we don't. Re- that's the trouble. We don't know how many people exactly are asymptomatic. I, I'm sure there's been more information come in that I should be on top of, but I'm currently not. But you know, it, it, whether it's ten percent or twenty-five percent or fifty percent, it's not going to be much more than that, probably. Um, but even any of those things means a significant number of thousands of people walking around without uh, symptoms. There's also the pre-symptomatic as well as the asymptomatic, so people who then go on to get symptoms will themselves have have it, you know have no symptoms for a bit, but apparently are infectious. So it is, yeah, you're not going to be able to get rid of it that way.
1: Well, I wasn't proposing it as a strategy. Sorry, sorry, I <laughs> do apologise. I think oh, I'm yeah. taking that a bit too seriously. <laughs> no, I'm only, I'm only joking. But, but yeah. no, I mean, it's... A, it's a, it, it's an interesting thing to logically rule out, I guess, because some people, yeah, yeah I guess you, you, you could assume that, but yeah, yeah. it's just, it's just real it's not realistic. No, but you what, could get what,
0: it down to such low levels that tra- testing and tracing becomes feasible. Yeah, yeah. And, and, but I, again, I like the, if you look in places like South America, I think the, you know, the virus is accelerating mm. at the moment. Mm. And, and yeah. there are places that don't have... And North America. Sort of,
1: yeah well yeah, yeah, yeah I shouldn't no, laugh that's, that's No no it's yeah. no
0: it's 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 worrying yeah, isn't it but you yeah. you see these things happening faster and faster and it's not you know we we can keep it under control here and we'll have to start keeping um borders you know quarantines at borders and things i imagine that probably becomes a good idea at some point when when our our own level of vaccine, uh, virus is low and other and other many other countries have it really high but it's it's just it's yeah it's not It's not at the moment a place where we can do uh, the where the world can rely on testing and tracing at at that
1: sort of level. Cool. Well, Tom, thanks very much for coming on the podcast. Um, Before I let you go, I'm going to ask you a bonus question on a unrelated topic, but it's a topic that's very much of relevance to the Turing podcast. Though actually, we haven't really done many episodes on it yet. Um, The topic is artificial intelligence, and you yourself have written a book about about this. Yeah. Um, but as a bonus question, this is, what to what extent do you or do you not consider artificial intelligence as an existential threat or major catastrophic risk in the same kind of category as the pandemic we're currently facing?
0: I, I think it is. I th- okay, so... This was the. I don't want to give away the ending of my book too badly, but this was like the big spoiler, question that comes spoiler, up. At spoiler, the end. yeah. Yeah, I know, I know. I know. Um, uh, uh, please do read it. You know, all, all good bookstores, etc., uh, um, etc. Cetera, et cetera. But the um, uh, if you do surveys of um, artificial intelligence researchers, they say that. It is very there, there, some, something like um, ninety. The, the, the median guess is something like it's ninety percent likely that there will be a um, something that we call a super you know, human level intelligence or better than human level intelligence, and in whatever that means, by uh, twenty seventy five. I think so comfortably in my children's lifetime, prob- possibly in mine if I manage to you know avoid the cars that I was talking about between my here and my children's <laughs> school, um, and. Uh, they also say, um, <clears throat> if you ask them, there, there's a, uh, there, I think, I, I can't remember, but something like a 15, the, the average median guess is a 15 or 20% chance of, when it does arrive, a, um, oh, I'm trying to remember the exact phrasing, um, very bad, in inverted commas, outcome, brackets, existential catastrophe. Um, this is from surveys done by Nick Bostrom and people at the Fu- Future of Humanity Institute in Oxford. And they um yeah so the the, the existential catastrophe means everyone dead or something comparably bad that means humanity never gets out of uh so did you say 25 percent 15 to 20 i think 15 to 20 percent chance um and if you take that at face value then that's really really scary and even if you don't take it at face value and you say well you know do the bayesian thing of well let's apply that to my priors or whatever um you know, we, could, we thought it was pretty unlikely before, and it brings. You could say maybe it's now. I, I, in the book, I just say, like, let's arbitrarily say that you're, you're, you're all a bunch of AI geeks, and you probably think AI is more important than it is. So let's just knock that down by a, an order of magnitude and call it one percent chance, right? That's uh, the one percent chance. Um, there's a, that's that's about twice as likely as my children dying in this car crash that I, I keep talking about for some reason. the, um, the you know the, the, a lifetime chance of someone dying in a car crash is about what, 0.5% in Britain. We don't think that is a silly thing to worry about. We think that is a perfectly like sensible thing to worry about. We dedicate lots of public money to it and education, and we you know I hold my children's hand when they cross the road. We take this stuff seriously, and try and reduce the costs of it. And I think a one percent chance of everyone dying, you know, which cashes out. I suppose comparable to one percent personal risk. I think is um, totally worth taking seriously. And it might be higher than that. And I, you know, I, I see people like Stuart Russell and so on, and um, ta- take, taking it seriously and writing books about how it can go terribly wrong. I, I see, I see the um, the smaller scale sort of. I mean, it's all. It's all just you give a computer, give an AI a. Um, a reward function it will try and maximize that reward function and that reward function might not al- align very well with what it is you actually want right the, the if you you know paperclip maximizer i don't know how much or re- uh, listeners will be uh, familiar with it but i mean the the classic example is uh youtube's um recommendation function they have been asked to max the the, the ai behind the youtube merit recommendation function has been asked to maximize user engagement it you know and click through into the next thing and they found that the best way to do that is to uh steadily um give them give, give readers more give v- viewers more and more sort of extreme political things to sort of work to, to make the, the viewers more and more worked up and get them more more radicalized and things and that is to, you know we, we don't want that to happen but it is maximizing the things that the uh the AI was told to maximise, and if we then get some more powerful AI to do that and tell it to maximise, you know, to say, give it say, cure cancer, it'll do find some way of doing that. That might not be the way we want it to do it. It could find that it's easier rather than learning all about biochemistry. Kill, and kill all
1: cells, stuff. kill the cancer cells, exactly. Yeah, kill cells, yeah, kill, kill all cells,
0: yeah, exactly, kill all the humans, no more cancer, we're done, right? And that that will be unfortunate because it's not what you wanted. And so I do think it is serious. I think it is worth taking seriously. I think there are lots of people who are taking it seriously. I think. um uh, the guys at, uh, you know, sh- uh, Shane Legg and Demis Hassabis at DeepMinder both explicitly said that this is something they think is worth worrying about. They also both say they are trying to build superintelligence, but they're going to try and do it right. But, and, you know, people at OpenAI uh, take this seriously. And, I, 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 you know, I think it would be silly of me, and it would be one of those things where because something sounds ridiculous, I reject it. That is not an intellectually defensible thing to do. It sound it it sounds silly and scary, but actually when you follow the arguments through it seems pretty plausible there might be good reasons that it's not plausible i but i haven't yet been had them shown to me and most people who say most people who argue against it sort of argue against it on the basis that the terminator is a film that they don't think is very realistic you know or they say <laughs> well if, you know if if an, if if an ai is smart it'll know what we really want well why your computer might you know, you've told it what to care about and then you expect it to care about something else i don't know why you would expect that to happen you know so yes, I do, t- I do think it's worth taking seriously. I don't think it is... I, th- I think in the end we'll be all right, because I think lots of clever people are working on it, but I think if lots of people, clever people weren't working on it, then it could go really badly wrong, and that would be, that would be a real shame.
1: Nice. That's that's a very well thought out answer. Thanks for that. I mean, literally, um, we're literally
0: at eighty thousand words on this precise topic. So I, <laughs> hope, <laughs> I hope it's well yeah. thought out. R-
1: remind our listeners of the name of your book again. It's... Um,
0: the AI does not hate you. Superintelligence, rationality, and the race to save the world. I think. I hope that is the correct subtitle. I should really have checked. But yeah, and, it, and it's um, yeah, it's only available in the UK, and well, not available. It's, it's, it's available in most markets but not the US at the moment I'm trying to get that fixed um, but yes it is, uh, it is out now and has been for a year or so paperback coming out in oh crikey uh, early next year sometime
1: awesome alright well we'll, uh, we'll pro- provide a link to the book and to your relevant articles about what we've discussed today um, in the show notes um, as you mentioned before um, but yeah Tom thanks very much for coming on the podcast
0: absolute pleasure thank you
1: very much to learn more about the work going on at the Alan Turing Institute, visit our website at turing.ac.uk. To get in touch with the podcast team, if you have any questions or suggestions, email us at podcast at turing.ac.uk.
0: Music for this episode was provided by Jammin Sun. You can listen to his latest releases
1: at jamminsun.bandcamp.com. The Turing Podcast is hosted by Ed Calstry, Tara Callum, Ben Walden, Effie Dennis, and produced by Dan Whitfield for the Alan Turing Institute.